I'd like to talk about joy. Um, there are so many misunderstandings about the teachings uh, of the Buddha, the teachings of awakening, and somewhere in the in the misunderstanding of the teachings, the the view has slowly seeped in that the teachings are just about uh, suffering. Because the first noble truth of the Buddha is that life has many things that are difficult to bear. That's not exactly a joyful teaching, is it? That the moment you're born, you are subject to things that are hard to deal with. Being born, aging, sickness, frustrated desire, wounded pride, insecurities, fears, everything. It comes with being a human. I notice some people, the more I say this, the happier they're getting. I know the first time that I heard the teaching of the First Noble Truth, that life has within it so many difficulties, uh, that it has a basic ground of unsatisfactoriness, I wept. And I didn't weep from sadness, I wept from joy that somebody was finally saying it. And it, it's, there's a kind of brilliance in the fact that even though the Buddha was called Sukhiya, or the happy one, that the whole teaching is about happiness and a path to happiness. He started with, in his dissemination of the, the Dharma, he started with how difficult life is. Because he saw that our, what keeps us in a state of constriction, what keeps us in a state of, of perpetual wandering, perpetual searching, what keeps us in a state of dissatisfaction is our Ignorance, our ignoring the, the facts, our being unwilling to, to come into some kind of peace and harmony with things the way they are, a kind of contentiousness with truth. That, uh, and truth always wins, unfortunately. So I always like to, periodically like to remind, well, maybe I do it every week secretly and, or without even knowing it, but is the teaching is all about awakening joy. It's all about happiness. And we don't open to difficulties to become miserable. We open to difficulties as a springboard, literally as a springboard to nirvana as the as the um, the cause of our of the liberation of our heart and the buddha was very clear though that that uh, that happiness even though he's called the the happy one sukhiya it wasn't the happiness it wasn't the happiness that um, that comes from uh, wasn't limited to the happiness that comes from getting what you want, from accumulation or from experiences. It didn't. 
wasn't the happiness that comes from having pleasant thoughts or a pleasant conversation. It, was, it included those kinds of pleasures, kind of comfort that comes from being seen, comfort that comes from being solitary or being together, whichever it is, the, all the many, many ways that, that, can, uh, that can gladden our heart and give it, lift our mood that the happiness of a Buddha was not a conditional happiness, not limited to a conditional happiness. If this turns out this way, then I'll be happy. It was aimed at its, its intention. The intention of the Buddha's awakening is to, to point each of us to a, a happiness, a joy that is um, free, a joy that is independent, a joy that doesn't depend on the circumstances of our life, that doesn't depend on even our mood, that doesn't depend on, uh, on being praised as opposed to being blamed, doesn't depend on having a big uh, windfall versus losing everything. Easy to talk about and very challenging to realize because we are pretty much just because of our training and our conditioning, we associate our joy and our happiness with getting what we want and then wanting what we get and associate our happiness with, with pleasure. But one of the things the Buddha realized is that pleasure, as much as it brings us so much delight, and, and without it we wouldn't be able to function very well, but pleasure is fleeting. So to have our sense of happiness dependent on pleasure as our devotion, as our primary aim in our life, is literally a cause for endless distress. Because then you're happy when you have it, unhappy when you don't. And that kind of happiness turns out to be a very unreliable any kind of joy that comes from getting what you want ends up being quite unsatisfactory, unreliable, and, and leaves, unfortunately, in its wake the um, addictive habit of continually wanting what you don't have, wanting, moving on to the next, next pleasure, or keeping up with what our neighbor has. Our neighbor, my neighbor, I noticed that my neighbor built, um, put a new garage door on. And I looked at that garage door and I said, that garage door, that, that is a beautiful garage door. <laughs> and then I looked at my own garage door and it's 50 years old. And, it's, and then I started to compare my garage door to the neighbor's garage door. <laughs> And there's no rest in that. There's no happiness in that. It doesn't mean I shouldn't fix my garage door. I've debated a lot whether to kind of tear out the whole thing or just keep fixing the springs and putting the new... And, it, and every single person, just as a little aside, every single garage door builder who comes... No offense if you're one of those... But everyone that comes to the house says, someday these springs are going to snap. You need to replace. You know, they scare you into... And I haven't, I haven't taken the bait yet, but who knows? 
And they tell horror stories about what happens if the springs... <laughs> anyway, off to... The... So in the simple, in the easiest, littlest ways, it's so easy to start thinking, I can't be happy unless I have my neighbor's garage door. Or whatever the equivalent is in your own life. And that's complete madness. And it's so interesting how I was in a state of perfect contentment ease and balance, and then I looked at my neighbor's garage door. (laughs) And all of a sudden, there was dissatisfaction. What's with that? That's not, that's, that's unreliable. Whatever peace and happiness I had, it was, uh, it was, it was dependent on not being triggered. So I realized that there's still, there's still some dependency on, on pleasure and getting what I want. And that's not to say we shouldn't have pleasure. I said it before, but I'll say it again. If we didn't have some pleasure in our life, some, some kinds of very conventional, worldly kind of happiness, we couldn't function very well. If we didn't, weren't able to see through these amazing eyes that nobody can explain or hear through our ears, if we're lucky enough to hear, be able to hear and be able to register sound, beautiful sounds and difficult sounds, if we couldn't taste and didn't occasionally taste something pleasant, our life just, it, 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 we would, it would really flatten things out. So it's not to do away with the, all the conventional or worldly pleasures, but to instead aim for that highest happiness, that happiness that doesn't depend on conditions. And it's understood in the teachings that if one puts their, aims their attention toward the the highest happiness, peace, the joy of freedom, then all the other kinds of pleasures come in the wake of that. But if one sets their sights just on the, the, only on the small pleasures of life, then one endlessly wanders in samsara's vicious cycle. Samsara is the, is the Sanskrit or Pali word that means endless wandering, always waiting for the next experience, always waiting for the future that never arrives, uh, constantly in a state of suspended happiness. And that, um, unfortunately that sense of having one's mind always toppling forward hasn't brought anyone true joy in their lives. So this habit of um, having our dependence, our happiness dependent on what's next, on getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, that that sets our mind in a state of, of craving, of a state of discontent. And nobody here wants to practice discontent. We all want to practice freedom and ease. But there's some trick that our mind plays that says it can't be found here and now. Yet, all of you, since you're, I know I'm preaching to the choir, you've recognized to some degree because you've stopped, you've sat still, and you've, for a moment, you haven't, you haven't, looked forward, you haven't looked back, and you've let yourself sink into your body, which is always here. And you may have noticed that when the dust settles a little, that 
there is, um, without having gone anywhere, the feeling that you hope for at the end of the rainbow is right there. Ah, peace, relief. And you didn't have to, you didn't have to go anywhere or even wait for it. It just starts to show itself and increasingly shows itself as your natural state. And it was only your searching for it elsewhere that blinded you to the, this natural great peace and ease that is the natural state of your mind. So that's the general view, is don't lift out of this moment to find joy. That if you can't find it here, you can't really find it anywhere. I don't mean here on Tuesday night. I mean here any time that you, that you stop going out of yourself. But the Buddha elaborated a lot on how in the meantime, not in the meantime, but along with the remember of that deep, the, the recognition of that deep truth that, um, that nothing, nowhere can make you happier than you are fundamentally, that all that all the search elsewhere uh, is misery, leads, leads to more misery. He didn't just give you the big picture. He said, it, as you realize, as you, um, as you go along through your life, there are countless, countless um, actions that we engage in. From the, morning, from the moment we wake up in the morning, Till the moment we go to sleep. And depending on how it is that you incline your heart and your mind during those waking hours can either bring increasing joy to your life or bring you misery. You know, I often read the Hafez poem where he says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into a nightmare. Don't mix them. But he also, he, he ends his poem by saying, you carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. And the, the central ingredient for turning your life into joy is learning to be lucidly aware. I said in the middle of the sitting tonight, I don't know if any of you picked up on it, maybe you were too far gone. <laughs> I was just a moment before. <laughs> but uh, I said, stop meditating. Just be lucidly aware. Now, if I say, if I say be lucidly aware, you'll be lucidly aware for a moment, right? And for a moment, you may get a... It may have a little fragrance, a little fragrance of peace. Lucidly aware. I'm being aware. For a moment, I'm not doing it, and I'm still aware. Isn't that amazing? I don't have to try to be aware. I can be aware. But that doesn't last very long. And so it's necessary because my mind is untrained and my mind is, um, is conditioned to go out in search and to get lost in my imagination, to, to, intend, to intentionally um, awake, wake up to this capacity to be lucidly aware. 
So I, I give rise to the intention. I'm inclining my mind to be aware. I want to be aware of being aware, and I want to, I want to exploit that, that fact. And I want to exploit it all the time, because I notice that if, if I practice this, practice being, the state of being aware, if I practice this, I'm practicing a little peace. I'm practicing the I'm practicing a little bit the highest happiness, a little a little glimpse of the highest happiness, peace. I'm not because in that moment of being lucidly aware, just right now check it out, in that moment of being lucidly aware, I'm not fighting with reality. I'm not trying to be somewhere else. I'm not trying to be someone else. I'm not um, I'm not pushing anything away, and I'm not holding on to anything. I'm just being in a state of awareness. In fact, it requires a, a cessation of effort in that moment, a cessation of doing anything. It's a state of being. Of course, it has a very, once I'm lucidly aware, it has a very active feeling to it. It's an active, it's... it's uh, it can be quite intense. It can be quite curious. It can be quite... All kinds of things flow from being lucidly aware. But the center of the path of joy, the path of happiness, is this practice of, of mindfulness or sati, being lucidly aware. And we apply that to whatever it is that's happening at, at one of our senses. So if I'm walking, I want to be lucidly aware of walking. If I'm eating, I want to be aware of eating. If I'm thinking, I want to be aware of thinking. I don't want to be just lost in thought. I want to be aware of, of what, my, what my mind is thinking about. I want to be aware when I'm, when I'm creating a whole version of myself that's, that's uh, unworthy or flawed. Or I want to know that that thought is it's a thought. It's not me. If I don't know, if I'm lost in those thoughts and I'm not lucidly aware of them, then I unconsciously incarnate in those thoughts. I actually, I start living in a kind of dream world. And I'm just carried along by the, the winds of whatever, the, the whims of the, my habitual thinking. But once I'm lucidly aware of that, I say, oh my, look what I'm saying about myself. All day long, I'm saying I should be different than the way I am. Or, and then I notice, not only do I say I should be different, I'm telling myself, I'm thinking that everybody else should be different than the way they are. And it just goes on and on. But the fact that I'm lucidly aware of that, it stops, um, it's, it stops bothering me as much. I stop taking it as personally. I see that, oh, these are, this is the judging mind. This is the self-judging mind. This is the external judging mind. Wow. And, and if, I, if I'm lucidly aware of that, I can see that it's just happening all by itself. It's just the thoughts are thinking themselves. It's, I don't have to take them so personally and believe that, that I'm in there thinking. That thinking is thinking. So we get to see that if we're lucidly aware. But more than anything, being lucidly aware is we get to see, we get to experience not our idea of the present, but we get to experience directly what it's like to be living in what we call the present. 
living in the present is very, very cool. It gets a lot of, it's, there's a lot of conversation about it, but often it's our idea of the present. Oh, yeah, I'm not, pre- I'm not living in the present, whatever. But to, to really be present, we, all, we have to actually drop that whole word called present. Because even that becomes a filter. It's a good arrow. It's a good pointer, the present. It's different than the past and future. We know the present has something to do with reality, has something to do with vitality. And the past and future, we know, is mostly, it's just mental. They don't really exist. But yet, the experience of being present, of being lucidly aware in the present, it's not something, it's what you experience after that word passes away. It's very vivid. It's very alive. It's very bright. It's very connected. That deep longing to feel connected is right there. So right here, after the word here has passed. And we are. We are that deeply connected all the time. While we're busy as... As Kabir says, oh, how I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. You don't understand that what's most alive and connected lives inside your own house. And so you wander from one holy city to the next with a confused look. So meanwhile, we are, when we are lucidly aware, we're immersed in a sense of um, being present. But not just the idea, but the experience of it. I know when I say this right now, I don't know if it has any impact on you, but when I say this, there's something in my body that starts to relax a little bit. I realize that I've been kind of spinning in in conceptual reality until I just stop. And then I feel in some ways held by life. I can, and I feel much more connected to you. And that's kind of fun. So this is the, the, one of the beautiful fruits of mindful attention, because you can only be mindful or lucidly aware in the present. The very, de- very definition is, it is it's lucidly aware, aware presence. And the only way you can have aware presence is being, uh, is having a body, being somewhat sensitive to this body, which is always present. Without it, we couldn't have this conversation. So you never, as one teacher, one Thai monk said, never let your mind leave your body. That's a great, great challenge, as all day long. Living, what was it from James Joyce's Ulysses about the character named Mr. Duffy who lived a few feet from his body? That's that's a this simple lucid awareness, which is your natural state, is the is a central um, cause of joy, and the, such good news that you don't have to create it. 
You simply have to remember it or realize it and not stray away from yourself. So that's, again, the general, the gist of being mindful. We, we can spread that mindfulness into everything, and it can become so sharp, so attuned, so continuous that, uh, that our life, as I was sharing the words of Nisargadatta last week, where I said if the mind is, is kept away from its usual preoccupations and you are here, it, your mind will become quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you'll see that it's permeated with, with light, get brighter and brighter, and love, and um, that you maybe have never known, but you recognize it at once as your natural state. And once you've sensed this, you, you'll never be the same person, he says, the, but he says the unruly mind will break that peace and obliterate that vision, but it's bound to return if the effort is sustained. So this effort, be, sustaining effort, is sustaining the, the intent, incl- inclination of your mind to stay here. That takes effort. It takes willingness and it takes effort. And if you do that and you do it continuously, as he says, all bonds will break and grasping and attachment will end and your life will become supremely concentrated in the present. It is completely, utterly up to you. Your salvation is not going to come from some kind of higher power. It's really up to you. It's what is, as the Buddha put it, whatever one frequently dwells upon becomes the inclination of the mind. If you frequently dwell upon being lucidly aware, you frequently dwell upon the life of the present moment, then you are literally planting the seeds in every moment of, of peace and, and, and joy, the joy of being present. Just to spice it up, there are so many practices that one can do in real time that gladden the heart, that make opening to the present moment with all its difficulties uh, easier to bear. And one I was thinking of tonight is, is the regular practice. And uh, periodically, we've over the years, we've I think we even had part of our our 100-day retreats, practicing gratitude. And I think I recommended one year everybody take on a gratitude buddy, find a gratitude buddy, and check in with that person every day and just talk about something you're grateful for. And people made connections. In fact, I got, I got letters from people who were living some, somewhere, was it Oregon or someplace on the other side of the planet, who, when they... When they <laughs> I know Oregon's not on the other side, but they heard the they they heard the Dharma talk about gratitude. They they hooked up with a gratitude buddy, and they'd been practicing it. For, they came to a retreat. They'd been practicing it for a year, and it had it had transformed their life. Just practicing planting those seeds every day of gratitude. And I do it every day. I I do it every Tuesday night. While I'm sitting, I'm, I'm so grateful 
for sitting with you, grateful. So we can, it's not so difficult to think about the gratitude for the, for the, um, if hopefully we have people in our life that we're grateful for, just the fact that they're there, grateful for the connections. I was so delighted to see people just celebrating and so much conversation. I don't know if it was letting off nervous energy, but it seemed like there was a lot of joy in the room this evening uh, during the break. Maybe not for the people who wanted to get on with the evening. You know, everybody's in a different state, but there, there's a lot of joy in connecting. And we can actually reflect on that. And when we put our attention on the feeling of gladness that comes with the feeling of gratitude, it grows exponentially. It enhances the feeling. If we just tune in to these moments that we're actually feeling happy. But our mind tends to go to the, it defaults toward the, the lowest state of the day. I, isn't it funny? Sometimes it just tends to bounce to what was hard. In fact, if you think about it in your life, it's a common experience that, that so many people just adore you, love you, accept you for who you are, but your mind just fixates on the one who, who, who doesn't see you quite as, <laughs> in such a favorable light. And this is a kind of default move. But we can intentionally, consciously turn our attention toward the, the, the way that those who we do feel loved by, supported by, accepted by. And that ha- can have the effect of gladdening your heart. And that kind of joy that comes from that is, you know, that's, it may be conditional, but nevertheless, it, it softens our experience of the present moment. We can even be grateful for our difficulties. Because if you, I don't know about you, but I know that every insight, kind of insight knowledge that has arisen from my practice has, has been, um, is some way tied to some extreme difficulty I had. This is not rocket science. This is, I think it's just the way it is. But somehow when things are really hard, Somehow it seems like it's the the worst thing that ever happened. But in fact, and I was thinking the time in my practice where I had intense, intense physical internal pain and restlessness. And and it was the studying of that experience and how it would come and it would go and and it was tormenting. And it was through that whole process that, that I came to understand the level to which my mind was always seeking for pleasure. And once I was able to see that my mind is looking for pleasure, and it just, I just caught it for a moment, that, that that looking for something different kind of faded away. And, and I had this great sense that, oh, it wasn't the pain at all that was the problem. It was the, this intense habit of wanting it to be other than the way it is that kept me caught up in, this, in, my, in, in a level of tension. This is just one simple example. 
And when I I was just thinking about this week in my practice, in one long practice period, I I felt completely, completely unmoored and groundless, and uh, regressed and felt infantile and and just felt completely alone in the world and no nobody around. And I and it was during that the middle of that experience that I realized I wanted to be, what I really needed was to be held. And then I I was able to hold myself and I realized, it was like a flash of insight, I realized that everything that I had done in my life, even the things that were completely distracting, all the extra stuff I had in my life, all the, all the, all the, um, the craving and everything, it was all some kind of indirect attempt to hold myself. And it opened up my heart, kind of uh, the heart of self-compassion. And that came out of a, a really difficult time in my practice where I was completely dissolved. So I'm really grateful for that. And when I think of that, I, it gladdens my heart. And why not? So think about that. If you can, think about the difficulties. Be grateful for the difficulties. And then grateful for just... um, So easy to forget the amazingness, the awesomeness. The Tibetan word they use, emaho, how amazing. The eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body. Just the fact that I'm here. I always... uh, I think once every month, I, the words of Thoreau get shared here, where he says, I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. Um, my thanksgiving is perpetual. It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches, for no run on my bank can drain it. Because my wealth is not possession, it's, it's enjoyment of being. So, that's something we can reflect on every day, and that gladdens the heart, just for being. We don't have to go anywhere to do that. Easy to miss, though, when we're busy making other plans, when we're busy trying to figure it all out. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to figure it all out and make other plans, but right in the middle of it, you've got to stop. Smell the flowers. Take a deep breath. Listen to the sounds. Just the fact that you can hear, if you can. I had uh, recently on the, on the uh, day long that I was doing on Loving the House that Ego Built, there were there were uh, there was a whole retinue of people who who don't have hearing, and they were they were learning through an interpreter, and then asking questions. And we were I had this just thrilling dialogue with several of them, and I know that I have a feeling, and others who may have one of your sense doors that doesn't work so well that I can tell that they were they're really happy and appreciative of the sense doors that that are functioning and they're actually heightened 
But when we have all of our sense doors working, it's really easy to take them for granted. So a little gratitude for having your senses never hurt anybody. So that brings joy, just to be grateful for a moment. And it's a joy to, as, uh, as it's sometimes called in the teaching, it's a joy to uh, offer uh, the gift of what's sometimes called the bliss of blamelessness. It's a joy to act um, in ways that are harmless, non-harming, to be kind in our speech, to be truthful, to be useful, to be timely, to speak for the benefit of whoever we speak to, to not cause harm with our speech, to be sensitive. There's a joy that comes from, from the effect of that. There's a joy that comes from, from being sensitive in our relationships, in our sensual, sexual relationships. There's a, there's a joy that comes from being uh, free of the dependency on uh, intoxicants, not causing any harm through, through heedlessness or through carelessness, which often comes from excessive use of intoxicants. There's a joy that comes from that, and that is completely within our power to practice, to grow in that. We are, we are trainable. The Buddha said, if it, if it wasn't possible for you to experience the joy that comes from, from purifying your action, he wouldn't ask you to do it. And he said, if it, if, there wasn't, if it wasn't possible for you to experience the joy that comes from a mind that is, that is more consistently here, a jo- the joy of concentration, I wouldn't ask you to do that. If it wasn't, wasn't possible to experience the great joy of equanimity, joy of being able to meet joys and sorrows and not, um, and not lose your balance, to be able to sit in the middle of it all and, and recognize a, a kind of stainless, mirror-like presence, no matter what happens. To have your heart break and have it be okay. If this wasn't possible, to experience the joy of your heart breaking, the joy of, of experiencing, uh, knowing that your heart quivers in the face of pain and to be there for it and to feel the strength that comes from that. If it wasn't possible to experience the joy that comes from being so big that you can take things on, he says, I wouldn't ask you to do it. So everything, there are so many ways to cultivate joy. The joy of the fact that we can see if we practice, we can see the fruits of our practice and then have that much more gladness that comes from seeing that we're actually developing. The, the joy that comes from aging, the wisdom and the, the balance that comes from having been through a lot. We can actually appreciate that, feel the gratitude for that. Joy. And just the joy of, the joy of freedom. So from the Dhammapada, a passage called Joy, live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still. Free from fear and attachment, 
know the sweet joy of the way. And I think I read this recently from Shanti Deva. Was it last week? As a blind man feels when he finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, and cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's sit marinating in this feast of joy. May all beings experience the joy of awakening. May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings everywhere. Little postscript from the from the famous guru Swami Biandananda. He says, be a fundamentalist. Make sure the fun always comes before the mental. (laughs) Realize that life is a situation comedy that will never be canceled. A laugh track has been provided, and the reason why we are put in the material world is to get more material. Have a good laugh-sative twice a day, and that will ensure regularity. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for your generosity and hope to see you in two weeks. Please come and and, uh, enjoy uh, Bhikkhu Bhante Vimala Vimala Ramsi. (laughs) Please support him very generously, okay? Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.